Okay, you can turn to Psalm chapter 9, Psalm 9. And um, we're going to use that as a bit of a launching pad to what we want to consider this morning. And, um, and I do, I must say, I, I do intend to pick up this series on discipleship when I get back from Fiji and, um, and we can then kind of progress through it then. But I want to minister this morning again on a particular issue that kind of uh, has uh, captured my mind as we've been watching what's going on in the world around us with Israel and uh, the escalation now of war and, and all that's happening and all that lies ahead as we consider Bible prophecy and God's plan and purposes. And there's just so, there's just so much to, to, uh, to think upon. And so we've looked at a couple of those things in the last few weeks. And as I think about the, the, the human suffering that we see around us and uh, just the whole concept of war and aggression and uh, those realities as well that we have to uh, um, live in, in the world that we live in, I was thinking about God's ultimate plan and not just the second coming of Christ in the millennium, but, you know, there's, there's a disturbing reality that is coming upon the earth. And I say disturbing because uh, it sends shivers down my spine when we consider what the Bible speaks about. And for all of the good things that we, uh, that we identify with, there are some serious, serious issues to contemplate when we consider what God is planning in the days ahead. And what I'm referring to this morning is uh, an issue that we want to consider in God's word, and that is the wrath of God. And so it's not something that you hear too much about, right? And um, it's not something that is emphasized near as much as what it should be, especially in this age in which the gospel is so deeply compromised and there's an overemphasis on God's love to the exclusion of God's wrath. And so there's a reality that surrounds that. But nevertheless, the truth of the matter is, is that God's wrath is coming. The wrath of God is coming on this earth. And it's a scary concept when you consider it as we will today in the scriptures. And so um, we're talking about God's fierce anger. You know, we look at Israel now and they're, they're angry. Israel's angry at the, uh, what's happened and so they're unleashing their fury upon um, uh, uh, Gaza and, uh, and all that, that's going on there. But you see, when we talk about God's wrath and we talk about God's fierce anger and we talk about his fury that will one day be manifested... You see, we talk about God being God of love and grace and mercy and all these glorious attributes. But when you consider this reality, the wrath of God is coming. God's fierce wrath and anger is going to be poured out in full, in fullness upon the earth, where God's going to judge the wicked for their sins and their pride and their arrogance of heart. We're talking about the nations. We're talking about men. 
We can see all around us the wickedness that is uh, all, way, uh, uh, all around us and we anticipate for us to be with the Lord. We anticipate the millennium. We are anticipating the second coming of Christ and our involvement and attachment to all of those things. They are glorious things that we rejoice in and we are awaiting. But yet uh, there is a stark reality that is, is going to come upon the earth uh, and men will suffer punishment. I mean, the Bible talks about the soul that sins shall surely die. And the Bible talks about eternal separation from God. It talks about eternal punishment, eternal destruction. This is an, an expression of the wrath of God upon men. In, in the eternal sense, this is a very scary concept to grapple with, but one that we clearly identify in the Scriptures. And we're talking about an unprecedented manifestation of God's wrath upon the earth and its inhabitants. And you read this in the Scriptures, and it's horrific, not just as it relates to uh, the dealings of God in, in time of Jacob's trouble and with Israel when they are ultimately will be humbled before God and broken as we've considered and then gloriously saved in that moment but what's coming upon the world as well in uh, uh, consecutively during that time is is also horrific Bible talks about the lake of fire those whose names are not found in the book of life will be cast into Gehenna, into the lake of fire forever. This is serious. This is scary concepts. This is the, the wrath of God being manifested. And so there's, there's different expressions and manifestations of God's wrath. But we're talking here in the context this morning of the wrath of God that's coming upon the earth. Because it's coming. And I want us to be uh, understanding of that. And also, uh, it's important because we need to ex express that and explain that to others because they need to be saved. And as I said before, I believe that there's been um, the gospel, as we, and, I want to, and I'll illustrate this, but the gospel is about God's love. The gospel is about a wonderful demonstration of God's grace, his undeserved favor, that he loves us. And when we, when we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're talking about a love that's so deep and so real. And these are the wonderful attributes of God. But yet we must, as the scripture says, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Consider the goodness and the severity of God because if you overemphasize one to the other, you, you, you can tend to an error by which you are overemphasizing one attribute of God to the neglect of the other and that can give people the wrong understanding or perception of God. And so there's a balance in all of this and there are various tensions, but we're talking about God's attributes. And in doing that, we're talking about his love and goodness and grace. But you know that God is a God of justice? God is a God of justice, that God is holy. And when you consider those attributes and how they express themselves, then we begin to understand the righteous judgment of God. We begin to understand God's wrath that will undoubtedly be poured out upon humanity in the days which are ahead. And so 
when we talk about justice and judgment, when we talk about even God's wrath, we're talking about the pointy end of his justice and judgment in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so we need to really just consider this. This might not be new, but I just want us to look at this this morning in the context of things because the Bible says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I know we talk about we, we know the love of God, so we persuade men. But the Bible says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And we must understand this, this, this attribute and this reality that comes to God's justice and judgment. And I want to look at this this morning with you. And so let's read a, a text. We're going to go through a couple of scriptures, but I want to start here because I want to lay a foundation. I think it's, we, we, and then we'll build on that to understand the wrath of God this morning. So in Psalm chapter 9, verse 16. The Bible says the Lord is known by the judgment he executes and the wicked is snared in the work of his own hands and it says meditation, selah, think about it, ponder upon it. The Lord is known, how? By his great love? Well, in one sense he is. But the scripture here saying the Lord is known to the wicked by the judgment he executes. And this is a, really an interesting concept because you find it throughout scripture. And uh, even when we talk about Ezekiel 38 and the war of Gog and Magog. And, you know, there's all speculation of exactly when that's going to take place. But the outcome of it is that the, that, the, that the earth shall know, the inhabitants of the earth and the nations shall know the Lord. Because God is known by the judgment he executes. When you see his judgment, when you see his wrath being poured out, when you see his fury, it gets your attention. You know, in, in Egypt, when they first saw a few little signs of Moses and miracles, they were like, yeah, yeah, and then the magicians were able to, you know, they, they matched it and, and that. But then when God just ramped down things up and the judgment of God was beginning to be poured out uh, in greater strength upon the nation, it's like, and then the ultimate of the, uh, the first killing of the firstborn, it's like they knew who God was. The Lord was known. He is God. He is King. He's a righteous God, he's a holy God, he's a just God, and he will judge iniquity and sin. That's why God, you know, the whole reason of the gospel of giving Christ is because God's uh, uh, wrath abides upon humanity. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But here we have, the Lord is known by the judgment he, which, in which he executes. And before we look at the wrath of God being poured out, this is the foundation because the word here, judgment, that he executes, this really refers to, uh, it's a legal term, and, uh, and it talks about um, uh, the, the legalities, so to speak, when it talks about justice and doing what's right. So the Lord is known by the judgment that he executes. It has to do with the divine law of God. And it is judicial in its nature. So it's not, it, it's, it's, it's a decision, it's logic. 
It's judicial. It's a breaking of God's law, which makes us guilty before God, which makes us uh, deserving of the righteous judgment of God. Just like we have a sense of justice. If somebody's uh, committed a crime and is, uh, or, 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 or stands in the court of a law, we expect the judgment to be ju- of that of justice, to be executed. And so again, we're talking about the righteous judgment of God. We're talking about the judicial nature of God. We're talking about a verdict of guilty that is, comes as a result of the divine law of God. That's why the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned because we've all been charged with the same crime. We're all guilty. The Bible says that, uh, that the, the purpose of the law is not to, be, uh, not to save us, but to, to show us our sin. And by the works of the Lord, no flesh shall be justified. But by the, by the law comes a knowledge of sin. And the whole purpose is that the whole world may be made guilty before God. Because we have all broken the divine law. We are all guilty before God. And the result of that is that we deserve the righteous judgment of God. And we are uh, and, and, as sinners. This is the backdrop to the good news of the gospel. And so we're talking about the Lord is known by the judgment he executes. That judgment is always based on truth. It's based on um, righteousness. It's based upon holiness and the nature and characteristics of God. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes and he says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So note the distinction here. He says, in light of the righteous judgment of God, because that's the point, is the the righteous judgment, the divine law, the judicial aspect of right and wrong. This then, as a result of our transgressions and our disobedience and our sins and the hardness and impenitence of our heart, Paul says, we are treasuring up. This is what the world's doing. They are treasuring up. They are loading themselves with their sins and their disobedience to God and they are treasuring up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. See, this is a scary concept. And so again, God's justice is going to be served upon all men for their transgressions. And so again, we're making the distinction, the righteous judgment of God and the the wrath of God in the day of wrath. Because as I said, there's a distinction. God's wrath is a demonstration of his anger and his fury at man's sin and wickedness. That's why we see it all over the pages of the Bible, manifested over and over and in so many ways, in terms of the Great Tribulation, the Day of the Lord, the Wrath of God, and we can talk about other aspects that we can see in the Scriptures. But the word wrath this morning appears 198 times in the Bible. And looking at firstly at the Hebrew word wrath in the Old Testament, before we look at the Greek and the New although they're closely associated, but there are some distinctions to be made. And the Hebrew word, it means heat, rage, anger, and it comes from a root word which means fiery, hot. 
God's anger has reached boiling point. And as a result, the steam, you know, you know, steam out of the ears or whatever you want to picture it, but it's, uh, it, it's a manifestation of his red-hot anger and it, it, it's the, the, the Hebrew word actually, uh, chima, which is, is, is how it's pronounced, it's, it speaks of a strong emotional state. And when you think about that, they're talking about an emotional state, a, a condition of dis, and a disposition of heart where there is a red-hot anger that's about to be unleashed in the same way we see it in the sense now of Israel upon Hamas, and we can see it throughout the scriptures as well, but we're identifying it in that way. Actually, the word is used in, uh, in first, firstly in the book of Genesis, where, remember, Jake, there's the story of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob deceived his brother Esau, and he got, stole the birthright, and Esau was furious. And it says in Genesis 27, verse 44, and this is his mother speaking to, to Jacob. She says, stay with him, meaning Laban, her brother. Go and stay with him. Get out of here for a few days, which was happened to be some 21 years. But until your brother's fury turns away, because he wanted to kill him. He was furious. He was furious and he was going to act in a manner to bring about uh, 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 harm to his own brother. But again, this is the same word. This captures when we talk about God this morning and his wrath. The Bible talks about God's wrath being manifested against the children of Israel and the nation itself in which he sent them uh, into captivity to Babylon. God used Babylon as a rod and as a source of judgment upon the nation of Israel because of their disobedience, their hardness of heart, their sin, and it reached a point place of boiling point you know where Manasseh was such a wicked king and that after he repented and he got right with God God says it doesn't matter I've reached a point and my wrath is coming upon the nation and and, and we have the expression of that and in Lamentations chapter 4 verse 11 the Bible says the Lord has fulfilled his fury he has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. See, this was the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel for their disobedience and their refusal to heed the prophets. And he was long-suffering. He sent them prophet after prophet. He suffered long. He forgave them uh, and, and all the rest of it. But the point came where God said, enough is enough, when God's patience runs out. And his wrath now is to be manifest. That's a scary thought. The Bible talks about the idea of the cup of wrath in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. It says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Even the city of Jerusalem, because of what was the, the Jews had done there in that time. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. God poured out his fury upon, upon the city of Jerusalem in that time because they had corrupted it. And we can talk about other examples in the Old Testament that refer uh, to and show us the righteous judgment of God and the wrath of God being poured out. We can talk about Noah's flood when God judged and destroyed the wicked 
men for their wickedness. I mean, the flood that wiped out the whole inhabitants of the earth in those days. We can talk about God's uh, intolerance of the sins of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, in which he then removed the righteous, and then it had reached a a point, and God poured out his wrath upon and fire and brimstone upon that whole city. We can find example after example of the manifestation of God's wrath being poured out in Scripture. And how that wrath is manifested and executed varies. But nevertheless, it is a result of his red-hot rage against men's sins and arrogance and pride of heart. Which brings us really to the, sec- uh, to the Greek word I want to consider with you because there are two Greek words that describe the wrath of God. And one is uh, called orge, and the other thamas or thumos. You guys would know, I hate to having to pronounce these things in front of Greeks. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's interesting because they have a distinction, and I just want to demonstrate this to you. Because the the word orge or org, it means anger, indignation, and wrath. Whereas the word thumos means passion, hot anger, wrath, and rage. Now they are similar, but they are subtly distinctive. And so, although the word orgy demonstrates and speaks of the strongest of all passions. The, the word uh, tumos this morning speaks of a spilling over and an execution of those passions. And to distinguish thumos from org means that thumos indicates a more agitated condition of the feelings when God is pouring out his wrath. This is where that word finds its expression. Whereas the word org indicates a more settled or abiding condition with a view of taking revenge. For example, what does the Bible say in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36? It says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. This settled condition, it's a disposition with a view of one day taking revenge upon, and vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And this is, this is, the, the, this is the state that we see. Uh, and then when, when the execution of that, or when that wrath uh, reached boiling point, this is the word tumos, where it's being poured out. But isn't it interesting that you know, we quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And how true it is. But in the same chapter, at the very last verse, it is clear that a rejection of that sacrifice, a rejection of Christ, and a refusal to believe on, on God's provision results in that person, not only, uh, they one that Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came into the world to save it, because the world is already under condemnation. And in this instance, the Bible says that if you don't believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides upon that individual. And then in the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God, these things will become manifest and men will be subjected to God's justice and judgment. If I can go back to Romans chapter 2, 
And I read verse 5 before, but I want to read to you from verse 8. Because, again, listen to Paul's words. He says, But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. And the words here is, is the Greek word indignation, which is tumos, and the word wrath, which is organ. And so this is the, the, the full manifestation of God's wrath being poured out. It's abiding. It's an abiding condition. That's what it says in verse 5. That's the word orgy when it talks about wrath in verse 5, uh, treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath. But then when it comes, when it's executed, when it's poured out and manifested, this is, this is red hot. This is the anger and fierceness of God's wrath, indignation coming upon the wicked. You know, the Bible says in, um, actually, notice, actually notice this, but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. It talks again, again we're just making that distinction between, I had in my notes here something that related to um, um, the righteous judgment of God. But I can't see it. Oh, there it is, verse 5. I've already noted that, so just put that aside. Sorry about that. Let's go to Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. And although it's in italics, and some would say, oh, well, it doesn't say the wicked, uh, God is, it says God is angry. Well, who do you think God's angry with? <laughs> the wicked. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 2, the Bible says, The wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. The wrath of God is coming. You know, what's even more interesting, and if you can go to Revelation, and we'll look at a couple of things here, because the Bible speaks about God's wrath in the book of Revelation like no other book in the Bible. And what's interesting, the scripture referred to in Proverbs about the roaring of a lion, the wrath of a, of a king. But you see, in, 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 the, in the book of Revelation, if you look at chapter 6 and go to verse 15, it says, And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lion, lamb, the wrath of the lamb. Talk about the lamb of God. This instance now we're seeing the wrath of the lamb, verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand with a question mark? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody will withstand in that day. The wrath of the Lamb. This is really an interesting concept because our brother just earlier spoke about the suffering servant. 
The Bible says that Jesus in, in Isaiah is as, as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. And we talk about Jesus in his first coming in the character of a lamb and uh, in, as a suffering servant laying down his life as a sacrifice and, and how, how it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to subject him to death. And he was appointed to die and to suffer. It is, it is wonderful when we consider God's redemptive plan in that context. The Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, that takes away the sin of the world. But in Revelation, it's the, the wrath of the Lamb. And what's even more interesting, as the scripture says that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. That's symbolic because, you know, when Jesus comes back, the Bible talks about his mouth. And though the lamb, the, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, but the, the wrath of the lamb is somewhat different. Go look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. This is speaking of his judgment against the Antichrist. But nevertheless, it highlights a, uh, an important truth. When it says, Second um, Thessalonians, let me get it. Second Thessalonians, verse 8, it says, And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The breath of his mouth. The breath of his mouth. And not only that, we have in the book of Revelation chapter 19, another expression that we see in where, where the wrath of God is being executed and Jesus Christ is returning. And look at what it says. It says uh, from verse 15, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself, this is Jesus, treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on a robe, but we won't read any further. But listen to that. Think about that. By his mouth, the sword of his mouth, he's going to strike the nation. And he is the one that is treading the winepress of the wrath of God this morning. The fierceness of his wrath. Note the expression. This is very expressive for good reason because it is a, it's, it's the wrath of God being poured out upon the wicked and upon humanity. It's fierce. It is, uh, it's, this is not a time for mercy. This is the severity of God coming upon the earth. And read the book of Revelation and see the dynamics of that wrath. It's horrific. People are dying. People are suffering. People are being subjected. You know, we read it before. Hide it. They said, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. In verse 20, in verse 21 of Revelation 19. It says, uh, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. And those uh, who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these were cast into the lake of fire, burning with 
brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Talk about, as, look at the distinction there. As a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. In the same way, he read in Isaiah, when he read from uh, the scroll on that day, and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal me to heal the sick and heal the brokenhearted. And he says, and to, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You know, Jesus stopped in mid-sentence, and there's a comma there in Isaiah, and he stops mid-sentence and he closes the book. Because you know what it says directly after that? And the day of vengeance of our God. Because when that day comes, when the day of vengeance comes from the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb, and his mouth now is not, open, uh, not closed but open, and the judgment and wrath and the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God is being poured out by Christ, the, lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. This is a serious concept to consider in the Scripture. The cup of his indignation, God's wrath. I want to read just one more portion here that relates to the wrath in the book of Revelation, just to get the overview and the picture. But in Revelation 14, verse 10, it says these words. He himself shall also drink of the wine, meaning the wicked, of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is heavy stuff that's going on here. And it goes on to say, if you look, um, um, uh, go down to... Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, miles wide. I mean, we're talking about horrific scenes here. I mean, it's hard to even fathom and imagine what the scripture is talking about here when God's fury is being poured out. I mean, we're talking about destruction on a scale that is unprecedented in the scriptures. So that brings us this morning to my last thought, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And part of the message of the gospel this morning must incorporate this aspect of the wrath of God. Because if we, if we don't talk about sin and judgment to come, as Paul reasoned, if we don't talk about those things, then how are people going to understand what they need to be saved from? It's not good news if you don't tell them the bad news. You tell them the bad news and that, the, and, and, and that they, their soul is in danger. And then all of a sudden you share the good news and it's like, oh, it makes sense. And so this is why, but this is what the church for the most part now has been avoiding. They don't want to talk about God's judgment. But think about it, because we see an overemphasis 
on God's love, 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 and love, but no one's talking about the reality of God's wrath and judgment that is to come. Now, again, this is balanced. I, I understand there are those that just preach hellfire this morning, and, and, they, they, and then they, they miss out on the love of God to the exclusion, and that's wrong too. But what I'm saying is you can't preach one without the other. We must emphasize the goodness and the severity of God in order that people can understand the gospel and understand how much of a wonderful sacrifice and how deep and in the depth of God's love. Because we all deserve to be judged. We all deserve to go to hell. But yet Christ died for us and, uh, and saved us from our sins. Wasn't it John the Baptist as he confronted those wicked religious leaders of his day, what did he say to them? He said, he who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. In other words, he's saying, flee, run, run, because the wrath of God is coming, especially upon you religious hypocrites, as he referred to them, because they had corrupted God's, God's law. And so in, in, they're being warned to flee from the wrath to come. So if that's the case, then where do we flee to? We flee to the Savior, Jesus. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, it says that we have fled for refuge. We've run to Jesus and he is our refuge. He is our fortress. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, let me read it to you where it's, it talks about it. Hebrews 6, that we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we have run to Jesus. That's what people need to do. They need to run to Jesus. And I'm not saying that we need to preach hellfire all the time. I, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But there is a time. If you neglect it, then something's not right. Something's not, is out of whack and not balanced. Peter puts it well in his epistle. Go to Second uh, Peter chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Some familiar portion of scripture here, but these are the days in which we're living in. Second Peter chapter 3, he says, Beloved, verse 1, Beloved, I write to you this second epistle in which of both I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That's what they're going to say. Where is God's wrath? What are you talking about, justice? Uh, God doesn't exist. Look at it. The world's now so many millions of years of old, and you keep telling us these things, and nothing's happening. But listen to verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of order and in water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the, the meaning god judged the world then and he's going to judge it again but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men it's coming but beloved do not forget this one thing that with the lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years is one day 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, God is suffering long, and the judgment of God, the wrath of God is coming. The Scripture clearly tells us that God is being patient, but a time is coming when God's wrath will be poured out at full strength, where his patience will run out. And so the whole purpose of that, the Scripture says, is because God doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. But we know the reality, and that's not going to be the case. You know, the beauty of the gospel this morning is this. We are not appointed to wrath. I thank God. That's why it's so, it's, it's, we've fled for refuge. We're in Christ. We're saved. We are free from the wrath to come. We don't have to fear what lies ahead for the world. That's what the, this is how wonderful it is. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We are waiting for his son from heaven. We're waiting for the second coming. We're waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting for the rapture and whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. We're not going to be subject to God's wrath. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We are saved. We in Christ. Amen. The world needs to fear. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, again, verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should, know, we should live together with him. We're one church. We're not appointed to wrath. He has delivered us from the wrath to come. So the church doesn't have to worry about the time of God's wrath. Because we're not going to be subjected to it. What did, Jesus, what did God do before he, took, before he poured out the flood? Who did he remove? Noah and the family. They were in the ark. That's where we are in Christ. We won't be subjected to the wrath of God. Who, and who did God do, what did God do before he judged Sodom and Gomorrah? He removed the righteous. Because he doesn't pour out his wrath upon both. And we have been delivered from the wrath to come. We're not appointed to wrath. And so we can rejoice in that with such confidence. But our testimony is this. We know the terror of the Lord. So therefore we're seeking to persuade men to be reconciled to God. Because God's wrath is coming. And if they are subjected to it, they are in serious, serious trouble. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen to what it says in Acts 17, verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God commands all men everywhere to repent, to, to turn to Jesus. To turn from their wicked ways, to turn from their, their, their sin, to turn from whatever it is that they are doing and to f- follow Jesus Christ and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved because God has appointed a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness. But you know, for us that are in Christ, we've passed from death into life. We've passed from judgment into life, John 5. 
And so my exhortation to us this morning is in light of the wrath of God that is coming upon the earth. Let us bear witness to these realities. You know, the Bible says that we are ambassadors for Christ. I was listening the other day to a speech by the Israeli ambassador. And he's speaking on behalf of Israel. They're asking questions. He speaks on behalf of Israel. He's a mouthpiece for Israel. He represents Israel in Australia in the embassy. And he's an ambassador for Israel in Australia. And he represents their interests. He speaks of them. He's here to defend them. He's here to justify them. He's here to represent them. The Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. And we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we are, it's incumbent upon us this morning to, to testify, to say to people, flee from the wrath to come, to preach to them the gospel, because the Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ, and uh, we are, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And so that's, this is the function that we have. Are we imploring people? Have we gotten so close into the, in friendship with the world that we're not sharing the gospel? Have we become so compromised in our witness that we, we, we conceal these things? Uh, we, must, we must be moved to, in the, by the reality of what's coming. Time is short. People need to be saved. And we've got to, we've got to understand what, uh, you know, Jesus was in the temple at 12 years old. And, uh, and he stayed back, you know the story, and he's... He's, um, he's there talking with the, uh, all the religious leaders and those that were there. And then the Bible says that Joseph and Mary came back they, to find him and they found him. And they said, what did you do? Why did you leave us? You know? And Jesus said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And we, we must be about our father's business. We have a job to do. We have a responsibility. We are ambassadors for Christ. And I think that... The, 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 there's a danger for all of us to get so close to the world that we forget that our light is not shining. The salt, if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? A lamp is, is, is not to be hidden under a bed. It's to be put on a lampstand so it shines. And so we, we must bear witness. We must bear testimony this morning. And that's uh, the words in which I want us to, to leave us with this morning. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Oh, God, I just give you the glory this morning, Lord. And how true it is, God, your, your wrath is coming upon the earth. You've appointed a day in which you're going to judge the world in righteousness. You've appointed a time in which, God, your fury will be poured out, your indignation and wrath will be poured out upon men. We thank you that we're saved. But, God, you desire that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. And we are ambassadors. We are those, Lord, that you have ordained to preach the gospel, to go forward and to preach Christ. Lord, we must be about this business. Let us, God, understand the responsibility that we have. And let us be about the Father's business this morning. I pray you bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.